Father in heaven, we're grateful that we can come with our Bibles in our hands, knowing that you are going to speak to us. So, Father, it's that very thing that I ask you to do right now. Thank you for giving us your word. Guide us, we pray. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. In the great book of Revelation, there are three chapters where you find God's people described in great detail. During our Bible prophecy seminar, we spent a bulk of our time on two of those chapters. In Revelation chapter 14, you find the message that God's people will proclaim in the last days. It has been defined as the three angels' messages. We've talked a lot about that during the course of our Unlock Revelation seminar, so we won't go into that this morning. In Revelation chapter 12, you find the characteristics of God's people in the last days. They keep the commandments of God, and they have the testimony of Jesus. In Revelation chapter 10, you find the historical experience that God's people would go through. And this is where we're going to spend our time together in our study this morning. If you want to know who God's people are in the last days, these are the three chapters that you want to study in great detail. You want to know what message they're going to preach. You want to know what characteristics they have. And you want to know what experience they are going to go through. So this morning, if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to the book of Revelation, the 10th chapter. We will not have time to go through the entire chapter. I will ask for forgiveness for that ahead of time. But we will look at the uh, overarching themes of the chapter. Revelation chapter 10. We're going to begin at the top of the chapter, and I'm going to pick a few verses here. You can read the rest of it this afternoon if you choose to. The Bible says this, And I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was upon his head. And his face was as it were the sun, and his feet as pillars of fire. And he had in his hand a little book open. He set his right foot upon the sea and his left foot upon the earth. And he cried with a loud voice as when a lion roareth. And when he had cried, seven thunders uttered their voices. And we'll jump down to verse 8. And the voice which I heard from heaven spake unto me again and said, Go And take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel which standeth upon the sea and upon the earth. And I went unto the angel and said unto him, Give me the little book. And he said unto me, Take it and eat it up, and it shall be in thy mouth sweet as honey. And I took it, uh, and I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it up, and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey, and as soon as I had eaten it, my belly was bitter." And he said unto me, Thou must prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. Let's just quickly review here what we see in Revelation chapter 10, just some of the themes that are going on here. Revelation the 10th chapter, we have an angel that comes down from heaven to earth. He has a little, hand, a little book in his hand that is open. He has one foot on the sea, one foot on the earth, kind of symbolizing world dominance or world power. He cries with a loud voice as when a lion roareth, and then seven thunders are uttered. Uh, He swears by him that liveth forever and ever that there should be time no longer. He gives the little book to John to eat. John eats the book, 
it's sweet in his mouth and then it makes his belly bitter. And after that bitter experience, John is told that he must do what again? He must prophesy again. In other words, he must share the experience that he had gone through in this acted parable. There are three things that we're going to look at in, John, in Revelation chapter 10. We are going to identify who the angel is, what the book is that is in his hand, and what is this bittersweet experience that they have gone through. The rest of the details we can look at another time. But those are the three main things in Revelation chapter 10. Who the angel is, what the little book is that's in his hand that is open, and what is this bittersweet experience that God's people were prophesied to go through. So let's start with the first thing. Who is this angel? Revelation chapter 10 and verse 1, the Bible says, And I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven, clothed with a cloud. Rainbow was upon his head, and his feet were as it, uh, was as it were the sun, and his feet as pillars of fire. His face was as the sun, and his feet as pillars of fire. And he had on his head, in his hand, a little book opened, and he set his right foot upon the sea and his left foot upon the earth. And he cried with a loud voice as when a lion roareth. And when he had cried, seven thunders uttered their voices. So let's look at four characteristics here that are given in the description of this angel in Revelation chapter 10. The first thing that we find out, or the first description that we see, rather, is that he has the face as a sun. His feet are as pillars of fire, the Bible tells us. His voice is like a lion when a lion roareth. And then the Bible tells us that there's a rainbow that is upon his head. Now, it's very interesting as you look at the description here of the angel in Revelation chapter 10, and you look at the description of Jesus in Revelation chapter 1, you will actually find that they are described in very similar terms. Notice what we find here. In Revelation chapter 1 and verse 16, Jesus is described as having a face like a sun, or his face lit up with the sun. In Revelation chapter 1 and verse 15, his feet are talked about as pillars of fire or like brass. In Revelation chapter 5, he is identified as the lion of the tribe of Judah. And in Revelation chapter 4 and verse 3, uh, we find the rainbow element in the description of Jesus and his throne. So it's very interesting when you look at the angel in Revelation chapter 10, and you look at the description of Jesus throughout the book of Revelation, you actually find that they're described in very similar terms. Now, some people get a little nervous with this, and they think, well, Maybe that means that Jesus was created. Now, the Bible is very clear that Jesus has always been and he always will be. Would you say amen? amen? Now, it's true that angels are created. But in the Greek here, the word angel comes from the Greek word angelos, which simply means a what? A messenger. Now, does Jesus have a message for us, yes or no? Of course he does. And in Revelation chapter 10, it appears like that message has something to do with something that is in his hand. It is called the little book that is open. So don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying when I identify the angel in Revelation chapter 10 as Jesus, I am not saying that Jesus is created because the Bible is clear that he's always been and he always will be. However, I do acknowledge the fact that the Bible tells us that Jesus has a message and it appears in Revelation 10 that it has something to do with that little book. So we've identified who the angel of Revelation 10 is. It is none other than Jesus. But what is this little book that is in the hand of the angel uh, that the Bible describes? Revelation chapter 10, going back to the chapter here, verse 2, the Bible says, And he had in his hand a little book open. Now, when it says that it's opened, what kind of connotation does that give us? That at one point it was what? It was closed. In fact, in the Greek, the word opened 
gives you very clearly that idea, the idea is being conveyed, that the book was once closed, but now it has been opened. So the Bible says he has a book that is open in his hand, that at one point it was closed. He set his right foot upon the sea, and the Bible says his left foot upon the earth. So what is the little book that is in the hand of the angel or in the hand of Jesus? Now, there's lots of ideas out there. Some think that the little book might be the book of Revelation because it's a mysterious book and difficult to understand. Some think that the little book might be the seven seals that were sealed, but no man could open them. However, I believe that there's a very clear biblical explanation of what the little book is that is in the hand of the angel. Now, those of you that came to the Bible Prophecy Seminar and those of you that have been to these seminars, you understand that when you read the book of Revelation, there is a companion book that you need to be able to understand the book of Revelation, and that is the book of Daniel. And in the book of Daniel, we begin to see an explanation that tells us what the little book is. Daniel chapter 12 and verse 4, the Bible says this, But thou, O Daniel, shut up the words and do what? Seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall be increased. Is that a clear biblical explanation, yes or no? The Bible tells us that Daniel was told to shut up the book and to seal it until when? The time of the end. Now, I won't take the time to go into all the details here because we've got a lot of ground to cover. But in in Daniel chapter 12, if you just continue reading Daniel 12, verses 5, 6, 7, and 8, it is very clear what the time of the end is. Those of you that have been coming to the seminar understand that the time of the end is referring to the 1,260 years of religious persecution. And again, we get that from Daniel chapter 12, verses 5 through 7, the time, times, and the dividing of times, which is the time period of religious persecution that happened from 538 to 1798. So what we find is this. Daniel is told that his book is supposed to be sealed for this period of time and that at the end of the period, at the end in 1798, that book would then be what? Open. So it would be sealed and then it would be open at the end, at the time of the end. So let's go on here and try to understand this a little bit more here. Notice the characteristics of Daniel 12 and Revelation chapter 10. I want you to just see how these are companion passages. I'm not just pulling this out of the air. These two chapters are very closely linked together. In Daniel chapter 12, you have a sealed book. In Revelation chapter 10, you have a book that's what? Open. In Daniel chapter 12, you have one, uh, one man on the land and one on the sea. Uh, and then you have in Revelation chapter 10, you have one foot on the earth and one foot on the sea. In Daniel chapter 12, you have a man that swears by him that liveth forever. In Revelation chapter 10, you have another one who swears by him that liveth forever. Now, just in case you're wondering, this is not profanity kind of swearing. The word swearing there in the Greek means to make an oath. He's making an oath to the one who lives forever and ever. In uh, Daniel chapter 12, you have all these things shall be finished. In Revelation chapter 10, the mystery of God should be finished. So really, they're parallel chapters. If you want to understand both of them, you need one or the other. If you want to understand Revelation 10, you need Daniel 12. If you want to understand Daniel 12, you need Revelation 10. They kind of go together in an understanding of these two chapters. So what is this book? Uh, what, uh, how do we understand the book that is sealed? Now, I think it's pretty clear that most people will understand that not all of the book of Daniel was sealed until 1798. Anybody who has just a limited knowledge of Bible history 
will understand is that the succession of kingly powers or earthly kingdoms, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, and all of that, that was understood far before 1798. The identification of the little horn as the Antichrist, that was understood far before 1798. Martin Luther identified the Antichrist as the little horn of Daniel chapter 7. Uh, uh, Daniel chapter 9 with the 70 weeks, Jesus understood portions of the 70 weeks Uh, when he talked about now is the time fulfilled that he should be delivered into the hands of the sinners. So there were portions of the book of Daniel that were understood far before 1798, yet the Bible tells us that it was to be sealed up until the time of the end. So what portion of the book of Daniel was it that was to be sealed up until the time of the end? The Bible, again, provides a very clear answer for us on this question. For it, we will go to Daniel chapter 8 and verse 14, where the Bible says, And he said unto me, Unto 2,300 days, then shall the what? Be cleansed. Now, we just had the refresher course on the cleansing of the sanctuary in the 2,300 days. This was one of the greatest prophecies in the Bible that predicted the time when earth would begin the time, or when heaven, rather, would begin the time of judgment here on this earth where the heavenly sanctuary would begin its cleansing process, the antitypical or the, uh, the, the day of atonement that would take place where the heavenly sanctuary would be purified. But now notice what it goes on to say. Just a few verses later after Daniel chapter 8, verse 26, the Bible says this, And the vision of the evening and the morning which was told is true. Wherefore do what? Shut thou up the vision, for it shall be for what? Many days. Now, when Daniel says, under 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed, when he says 2,300 days, it's really betterly translated 2,300 evenings and mornings. And Daniel goes on here, and he is told that the vision of the evenings and the mornings, which, uh, which was told, which is true, it was to be shut up for many days. So let me just be very plain here and very clear. The portion of Daniel that was closed until the time of the end is not the entire book. The history, the first six chapters, everybody could understand. The succession of kingly powers, everybody understood that. The Antichrist, that was understood. But the portion of Daniel that was sealed until the time of the end was specifically the portion that dealt with the 2,300 days and the cleansing of the heavenly sanctuary. That was to be sealed or shut up for many days. Or for, yeah, for many days. So that's the portion of the book of Daniel, the portion that's dealing with the 2,300 days. Now, Revelation goes on because there's another part of this. So we've identified who the angel is, that's Jesus. We've identified what the little book is. That's the portion of Daniel that deals with the 2,300-day prophecy. But what's this bittersweet experience that's talked about? Daniel, Revelation chapter 10, verses 8 through 10, the Bible says this. And the voice which I heard from heaven spake unto me again and said... Go take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel which standeth upon the sea and upon the earth. And I went unto the angel and said unto him, Give me the little book. And he said unto me, Take it and eat it up, and it shall make thy belly bitter, but it shall be in thy mouth sweet as honey. And I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it up, and it was in my mouth sweet as honey, and as soon as I had eaten it, what happened? Now... Are we, are we to understand this passage that the angel is telling Daniel to literally eat the book? 
Is that what he's talking about? Of course not. When you talk about somebody eating a book, what does that mean? They're taking the knowledge and they're putting it where? In their head, right? So somebody who is a voracious reader, somebody who reads a lot or very quickly, we oftentimes refer to them as doing what to the book? Devouring the book, right? They're not shredding the pages and eating it. Rather, what they're doing is they're taking that knowledge and they're putting it inside of their minds. So John is acting out a parable here. And he is told to take the little book in the angel's hand and to consume it. And as he reads that information, as he, as he ingests the information in the little book, he at first has this very sweet experience. It's in his mouth, very sweet. But as soon as he starts to get a better understanding of it, the Bible tells us that it becomes what? Bitter. Now, there's a companion passage to this one uh, that's worth bringing in, and it's in Ezekiel chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. The Bible says this. Moreover, he said unto me, Son of man, eat that thou findest, eat the roll. Now, just in case you're wondering, that's not Thanksgiving rolls. Let people say amen. That's talking about the rolls like a book roll in the, in the Old Testament times, right? So don't, don't start thinking about lunch this afternoon yet. Uh, eat that thou findest, eat the roll, and go speak unto the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and, caught, and he caused me to eat that roll. And he said unto me, Son of man, cause thy belly to eat it, and fill thy bowels with the roll that I give thee. Then did I eat it, and it was in my mouth as what? Honey for sweetness, he says. Now notice this part. This is very important. And he said unto me, Son of man, go. Get thee unto the house of Israel and do what? Speak with my words unto them. I don't want you to miss this point. Connect it with eating the roll. Connect it with eating the little book. Both John and Ezekiel were told to go and share the experience that they had gained from their consuming of the roll and the book. Did you get that, yes or no? All right. So Ezekiel is told, go speak unto the house of Israel. John in the book of Revelation is is told, thou must prophesy again. So when we gain knowledge from the word of God, what are we supposed to do with it? Supposed to dig a hole and put it in the ground, right? Come on now. According to scripture, we're supposed to what? That's called being a wise steward of the knowledge that God gives to us. All right? So we, we gain the knowledge and we share it with those that we come in contact with. So that's what Ezekiel did. And that's what John is told to do after his bittersweet experience of eating the little book. So here's what we find out. The experience of eating Daniel's little book was sweet at first, but then it became bitter after it was eaten. So let's just review some things that we've seen so far. Number one, we find eating is gaining a knowledge, understanding, and then proclaiming the words that we find, or the word of God. The little book is the part of Daniel that deals with the judgment or the 2,300-day prophecy that ended in 1844. Uh, The sweet experience is that the words were joyous to understand at first. It's a joy to them. And then later on, the bitter experience is when their fuller understanding came, it led to a bitter part of that experience. So here's what we find out so far. Now, how does this all roll out in practical terms? Well, let's take a look at this sweet experience. Right around the time period of the end of the the, uh, 1260 years, the end in 1798, the 1260 years of religious persecution, right around that time period from 1798 to around 1844, 
there was more study and interest by Bible scholars of the chapters of Daniel chapter 8 and chapter 9. More prominently in the 1840s to 1844 is the time period that we find these two chapters delve into quite extensively. It's interesting, if you look at Bible commentaries prior to this time of 1798, you will find that there wasn't very good understanding of Daniel 8 and 9, and there is a reason for that, because that portion was what? It was closed. But after 1798, there's an explosion of interest in these two chapters. There's a lot of people that are studying it, and they're all coming to a similar conclusion as they study the prophecy of the 2,300 days. Every one of them, independent of themselves, come to the conclusion that something climactic is going to happen in the 1840s to 1844. In the United States, a man by the name of William Miller, who was a Baptist minister, he studied the prophecies of Daniel 8 and 9, and as he looked at the 2,300-day prophecy, he concluded from his study that in 1844, Christ would come back for the second time. Now, they had a misunderstanding. They, they, they took the cleansing of the sanctuary as the purification of the earth with fire. And obviously, the purification of the earth by fire happens at the second coming of Christ. So that was the conclusion that they came to, that Christ would come in 1844. In England, a man by the name of Edward Irving came to very similar conclusions. In Germany, Johann Bengel. In South America, Manuel de Lucunza. Sweden, Denmark, and Norway, children were preaching about the second advent of Christ. And in Asia, Dr. Joseph Wolff. All of these guys were studying these prophecies independent of one another, and they were all coming to the same conclusion that something significant would happen in the 1840s to 1844. I don't know about you, but I see the hand of God in there. Amen? All of a sudden, the book is open, and the Holy Spirit just moves upon people to give them a better understanding of that prophecy. Listen to this. This is, uh, again, just explaining the sweet experience. Uh, In the book, Tell It to the World, C. Mervyn Maxwell says this. This is a history book on this period of Earth's history. Uh, Hearts were filled with joy and holy excitement as thousands took their stand for Jesus. Through the preaching of one Advent preacher... Uh, William Miller, the Methodist Church gained 40,000 new members and the Baptists, 45. Would you say that William Miller was an effective preacher? He was just a farmer, but he wrestled with God and he came out a preacher, didn't he? Amen? 85,000 people were drawn to this message that Christ was going to return in 1844. Hearts were filled with great joy and expectation that the world was going to come to an end and they were going to be whisked away to the kingdom of heaven. A Newburyport shop owner made this statement, believing as I most sincerely do that the Lord Jesus will in a few days come in the clouds of heaven. I retire from this shop as I am determined, God being my helper, that my works shall correspond with my faith. You hear the, enjoy, the joy that they have in their hearts, yes or no? They're looking forward to it. If you knew that Jesus was coming back next week, would you be excited? Sure you would. They were excited about this. They were looking forward to the coming of Christ. The Providence Journal front page made this statement. If I owe anybody any money as a result of my business dealings, and if I've not been faithful in paying it, please let me know so I can pay my debts because Jesus is coming on October 22, 1844, and I want to ascend in the clouds to go with him. They were so excited. They were doing everything they could. They were leaving their crops out in their field. They weren't even harvesting their crops because what was the point? Jesus was coming back. Thousands, tens of thousands of people were looking forward to in great expectation that Jesus would come on October 22, 
1844. But did dear Jesus come back, yes or no? Let me ask you a question. If you were part of those 85,000 plus people, would you have been disappointed on October 23? Listen to this, uh, the explanation of their bitter experience. This is from Hiram Edson. He says, our fondest hopes and expectations were blasted. And such a spirit of weeping came over us as I've never experienced before. It seemed that the loss of all earthly friends could have been no comparison. We wept and wept until the day dawned. Was he full of sorrow, yes or no? Was it bitter? Very bitter. Henry Emmons made this statement. I waited on uh, all Tuesday, October 22, and dear Jesus did not come. I waited all forenoon of Wednesday, but after 12 o'clock, I began to feel faint. My natural strength was leaving me very fast, and I lay prostrate for two days without any pain, sick with what? Disappointment. That's why historians call this period of time the great disappointment. Jesus was supposed to return, and he did not come back. Here's another one from James White. He made this statement. Uh, When Elder Himes visited Portland, Maine, a few days after the passing of time, or the passing after 1844, and stated that the brethren should prepare for another cold winter. My feelings were almost uncontrollable. I left the place of meeting and wept like a what? A child. Was it bitter? Was it sweet and then bitter? Yes. And the Bible prophesied that there would be a bitter, sweet experience when this book would be opened. Ellen White made this interesting statement. Again, just commenting on this period of time, she said, it was a bitter disappointment that fell upon the little flock whose faith had been so strong and whose hopes had been so high. But we were surprised that we felt so free in the Lord and were so strongly sustained by his strength and grace. Even though we go through disappointment, God is still with his people. Would you say amen? The angel, Jesus. The little book, the portion of Daniel dealing with the 2,300 days. Was it prophesied that they would have a bittersweet experience, yes or no? Let me tell you something this morning, brothers and sisters. Many of us are embarrassed when we look back on this piece of history, and we hope that nobody asks us anything about it. But I want to tell you this morning, on the authority of God's word, it was prophesied to take place and be proud of it. Now, we can, we can talk about why that happened another time, but suffice it enough to know that God predicted that there would be a bittersweet experience with the opening up of the book of Daniel. Now, let's not question why God did that. God simply said it was going to happen, and it happened. Now, here's something that's very interesting. This was not the first disappointment that took place when it came to God's people. But there was another great disappointment that happened 2,000 years before this one. So let's just rewind a little bit and see what took place in the first great disappointment. During the time of the Gospels, was there joy and happiness in seeing Jesus ride into Jerusalem on the donkey, yes or no? Let's read about it here. Notice what it says. Matthew 21 and verse 9, the Bible says, And the multitudes that went before and that followed cried, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Were they excited? They thought Jesus, you know, this was a, in their mind, this was a symbolic depiction that Jesus was about to establish his earthly kingdom. You know, the Jews thought that Jesus was going to do that. They thought the Messiah, rather, would do that, that he would establish a kingdom here on this earth, break the yoke of bondage that the, that the Romans had placed around them, and they would have this great liberation. And they thought that Jesus might be the one that would do it. 
Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna to the Lord in the highest. They were so excited when Jesus came into Jerusalem. But just moments later, days later, were they disappointed? Yes or no? There is disappointment when Jesus died. Luke chapter 24 and verse 21, the Bible says, but we trust it that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel. And besides all this, today is the third day since these things were done. Were they disappointed? Yes or no? They were. There was a great disappointment that happened. They thought he was going to establish his kingdom, but he didn't. He died on the cross instead. Jesus corrected their misunderstanding of prophecy. Luke chapter 24, verse 27, the Bible says, And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things what? He basically told them stuff that they should have already known if they had studied the Bible for themselves. So he gives them a Bible study. He starts from the beginning and goes through the end. And he gives them a Bible study and he re-educates them on what they should have already known. Now the narrative goes on and we find that the disciples, after they get this new understanding, the disciples are told to preach that new understanding. We find that in the great gospel commission of Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. So now they're told to go forth and preach with a new understanding that they had gained from the resurrected Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ himself. But it goes on. Jesus began, after this, Jesus began his ministry in the where? In the holy place. We see that very clearly in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 12, neither by the blood of goats and of calves, but by his own blood, He, that is Jesus, our high priest, entered once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Hebrews 9, 24, for Christ has not entered into the holy place made with hands, which are a figure of the true, but where? Into the heavens itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Would you say amen to that? He's our great mediator. He's there in the presence of God for us. The Bible's very clear that when Jesus ascended, he went into the holy place to begin this work of mediation on our behalf, preparing a place for you and for me. And then the last thing we find out is that as a result of this, the New Testament church is born in the book of Acts. Now, I don't want you to miss this point. Stick with me. I'm only going to be a little bit longer. I don't want you to miss this point. The New Testament church was born out of a great disappointment. And that great disappointment came from a misunderstanding of Bible prophecy. Can you see that, yes or no? The New Testament church was born out of a disappointment. They had a misunderstanding. They thought that the Messiah would establish an earthly kingdom, yet the Messiah was called to come and be a sacrifice Uh, As John the Baptist said, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. They had a misunderstanding of Bible prophecy. Therefore, they were greatly disappointed when things didn't happen the way they thought they should. Now we fast forward 2,000 years. When we come to the time period of 1844, when Revelation chapter 10 tells us that the little book would then have been opened for some time. And we find the Bible's description of the second great disappointment, as we've already seen. Joy and happiness in the preaching from the little book. The Bible says in Revelation 10.10, and I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it up, and it was in my mouth as what? Is it enjoyable to eat, eat honey? Those of you that like it, it is anyways. It's enjoyable to eat something sweet. It's an enjoyable experience at first. But then it goes on, and there's a disappointment when Jesus did not return as they thought the Bible had predicted he would 
The Bible says that as soon as he had eaten it, it made his belly bitter. How did those from many different denominations respond when Christ did not return as they expected? Let me dispel a common misunderstanding, just in case there's anybody here that believes it. Seventh-day Adventists did not predict that Christ would come back on October 22, 1844. Just so, you, just so we know this, because this is something we are accused of. Adventist church was not organized until 1863. William Miller was a Baptist minister, and there are many other denominations that were involved in this process of proclaiming that Christ would come back on October 22, 1844. Now, what did they do when Jesus did not return? Well, there's several different things that happened as a result of this. Some gave up on religion completely. They just turned their back on God and said, forget it. I'm not going to do anything with religion anymore. Others set new date for the advent of Christ. Have we seen some of that recently? You know, 2012, they made this prediction that Christ was going to come back in May and all that kind of... We still have vestiges of that even today. Most churches gave up on the study of prophecy completely. Do we still see that today, yes or no? Listen, I can't tell you the amount of people who come to me and say, listen, my pastor won't touch the book of Revelation with a 10-foot pole. And if, the, if he does, it's so vague and difficult to understand that they don't get much out of it. And so we still even see vestiges of this. They felt a little trigger shy because in their mind, prophecy had let them down. Therefore, they didn't want to go to prophecy any longer lest they be let down one more time. But there was another group who went back, a small number, who searched the Bible again, and they, they, they came to the conclusion that the Bible is never wrong, that they must have made a mistake. Because the Bible says that God is faithful. The Bible tells us that God does not lie in the book of Titus. They knew that they must have made a mistake, that the disappointment was not God who disappointed them, but it was they who had a misunderstanding that led to the great disappointment. And so they went back to the Bible, and they began to study. And they found out in Scripture, as they began to study, that it wasn't the earth that was to be purified, but it was, as we found in our Bible prophecy seminar, the heavenly sanctuary that was purified beginning in the time period of 1844. Study of Scripture revealed that they had made a dreadful mistake as they went back to the Bible. This is how Hiram Edson describes this. He says this, My mind, this was after the disappointment, was carried to the 10th and the 11th chapters of Revelation where John was told to take the little book from the angel's hand and to eat it. It tasted like honey in his mouth, but when he had eaten it, it was as bitter as gall. That is our experience, brother. Was not it sweet to believe that Jesus was coming yesterday, but now it is bitter, very bitter. The sanctuary I saw in heaven and Jesus entered yesterday upon his work of what? cleansing it. Very quickly, they started coming to the realization, once their prejudice had been put to the side and they were laid open, they came to the conclusion from Scripture what had taken place uh, on that very day in 1844. After this, the disappoint, after the disappointment, those uh, disappointed people are told to prophesy again, and that's in Revelation chapter 10, verse 11, and he said unto me, thou must prophesy again before many uh, peoples, nations, tongues, and Kings. Now, this sounds very similar when you look at this. Uh, it sounds very similar to what we find in the book of Revelation, chapter 14 and verse 6. And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, and to every nation and kindred and tongue and very similar. So what was it that John was to prophesy again? He was to prophesy the everlasting gospel of Revelation, the 14th chapter. Would you say amen? So he's to come out of this disappointment and to prophesy again, to bear this message before many peoples, multitudes, nations, 
and tongues, the three angels' messages. After this, Jesus begins his ministry in the most holy place, as we've already seen in our study together in the Prophecy Seminar. Under 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. Jesus changed his work from the high priest uh, in the holy place into the high priest in the most holy place, where the uh, Day of Atonement begins to take place and the cleansing of the heavenly sanctuary happens. It was therefore necessary that the pattern of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices. What was the better sacrifice that the heavenly sanctuary was purified by? It wasn't the blood of goats and of calves, but it's the precious blood of Jesus. So not only was he our high priest, but he was also the sacrificial lamb. Now here's something interesting. This is just an uh, artist's conception of the, earth, of the earthly sanctuary. And we know from our study that the earthly is a reflection of the heavenly. Moses built the earthly sanctuary as a pattern of what was in the heavens. So here's what we find out. Follow me closely here. In heaven, when Jesus ascended, from the time of his ascension to 1844, Jesus was doing the work in the holy place of the high priest, the mediatorial work where he was mediating on man's behalf. So we know from Scripture what Jesus was doing. He's not just up there walking on streets of gold and having a good time with his father and those that are, uh, the angels that are up there. But he is actually engaged in a work, a work as a high priest. That's very clear in the book of Hebrews. From, 18, from the time of his ascension to 1844, Christ has been doing this work in the high priest, of the high priest in the holy place. From 1844 to the second coming, when he comes in the clouds of heaven... Christ has now entered into the second phase of his work as the high priest in the most holy, where he is now doing the work of purification. Now, for some of us, we may need to go back and bone up on this in our notes and kind of uh, get this, 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 the, the prophecies and the Bible passages clear in our minds to really get a fuller understanding of this. But what we can see is what Jesus has been doing from the time of his ascension. Many Christians have a misconception that Jesus has just been in heaven having a good time building mansions. But the Bible is clear what Jesus is doing. He's doing the work of the high priest. He's preparing a place for you and for me. And I want to tell you something. I don't tell you this because I'm proud. But I tell you this just because it's fact. The Seventh-day Adventist church is the only church that knows what Jesus has been doing for the past 2,000 years. And it's because of an understanding of Bible prophecy and how that Bible prophecy plays out with Jesus' work in the holy and the most holy place. Now, as a result of this great disappointment, the second great disappointment, after they are told to prophesy again and Jesus begins his work in the most holy place, shortly after the 1844 disappointment, as I mentioned in 1863, the Seventh-day Adventist Church was formulated as a denomination in the world which really, it shouldn't be called a denomination. It should be called a movement. Because we're not here to establish anything. We're here to move on from earth to the kingdom of heaven. Now, let's just review something really quick, and then we're going to end this. 2,300 days obviously started in 457 B.C. with the decree to restore and build Jerusalem. 2,300 years from there, it ends in 1844, where the judgment begins. That was where the great disappointment was. Christ entered into the high priestly ministry work in the most holy place. Now, again, notice in 31 AD, when Jesus died, according to prophecy, the disciples were what? The disciples were what? They were disappointed. At the end of the 2,300 days, the people of God were again what? Disappointed. But out of the disappointment in 31 AD, 
The New Testament church was born out of that disappointment, out of that misunderstanding of Bible prophecy after they had their re-education and were told to prophesy again. The New Testament church exploded in the book of Acts. In fact, they were referred to as the ones who had turned the world upside down. Out of the second great disappointment in 1844, the Seventh-day Adventist church was formally organized as a distinctive people that were to go forward to proclaim the soon coming of Jesus Christ in the clouds of heaven. There's no shame about this, brothers and sisters. It was said that it was going to happen this way. That's what the bittersweet experience is all about. Now, I know some people have a hard time with it. Why would God allow something like this to happen to his people? I think it's pretty clear why it happened. It happened because they had a misunderstanding of Bible prophecy. And listen to me very carefully. The mistake that they make or made, we can make as well. And I want to tell you something, friends. There will be a third great disappointment. You know when that's going to happen? It's going to happen at the second coming of Jesus. If we have a misunderstanding of the Bible and Bible prophecies, there will be a third great disappointment. And there will be no chance at that point to restudy the word of God. Now is the time that God has given to us to study the prophetic books of Daniel and Revelation, to study the Bible. We have been given freedom in our country that is not going to last forever. We have been given resources that are at our fingertips. Yet the Bible largely goes unstudied and unread. Brothers and sisters, I don't want to be on the wrong side of the second coming. I want to be ready when Jesus comes to take us home. So in Revelation, we have God's people's message described in Revelation 14. We have the characteristics described in Revelation 12. We have their experience described in Revelation chapter 10. And I want to tell you this morning, this is the reason why I am a Seventh-day Adventist. I'm not a Seventh-day Adventist because it's popular. I'm not a Seventh-day Adventist because they pay me a salary. I'm not a Seventh-day Adventist because of any prestige that the church may bestow upon me. But I am a Seventh-day Adventist because I can point to the book of Revelation and I can say, here is the message that we preach. Here is the characteristics that we have. And here is the experience that we were prophesied that we would go through. And that's the only reason why I'm a Seventh-day Adventist. I can't help it. When I look at how the Bible describes what God's people would go through, what they would preach and what characteristics they would have, when I see that in the book of Revelation, I can't help but hang my hat on the Seventh-day Adventist denomination. And that's why I am a Seventh-day Adventist, and that's why we should all follow God's book, because it will lead us in the right direction. Amen? There's nothing to be ashamed of. God said it would happen. We are thankful that God allowed it to happen for it was another evidence that he is leading his people. This morning, would you like to thank God that he is leading each one of us? That he is giving us the experience that he wants us to have. But yet also, brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you. Take that time each day to study the word of God so that you won't be disappointed when Jesus comes to take you home. For many will say in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name and in thy name done many wonderful works? Jesus will say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. But he will say to some, enter thou into the joy of the Lord. I look forward to that time. But right now is our time that we have been given to faithfully and diligently 
study the living word of God so that we're ready to meet our God. Is that what you would desire this morning? Amen? Let's pray and ask God for that this morning. Father in heaven, we are thankful that you've given us your word. We are thankful, Lord, that you've described the experience that your people would go through. We're thankful, Lord, that you give us the characteristics that they would have and that the message that they would preach. And Lord, we pray that as we prepare our hearts for the soon coming of Christ, that we will not have anything to do with the third great disappointment. Lord, I pray that when you come in the clouds of heaven, that we won't be crying for the rocks and the mountains to fall on us, but that we would look up into heaven with hopeful and joyful expectation with the words on our lips, lo, this is our God, we have waited for him. We will rejoice and be glad in his salvation. And that we will hear from the anthems of heaven, from the voice of God himself, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter thou into the joy of the Lord. Father, give us this experience. May we improve the opportunities that we have to grow in our understanding and our knowledge of your word. May we apply it to our lives. May we share it faithfully as we have been told to in the book of Revelation. Bless us to this end, we pray. We thank you. We ask it in Jesus' name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.